I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. Peter Boghossian is a philosophy professor at Portland State University and the author of A Manual for Creating Atheists, a book in which he talks about, quote, street epistemology, essentially how to talk people out of their faith. He's currently working on a phone app that will guide people through that process. So, Peter, thank you for being with us. And tell me what you're trying to do, because it sounds like it's atheist evangelism in a sense. I guess one would have to define the word evangelism. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. I, I don't think we have, is this the first time we've spoken? I think this is, yeah. You and our oh, close well, personal friends. But you, <laughs> yes, Jessica, you, you're, you're close personal friends. Um, we <laughs> met at, at TAM two years ago. Yes. So no, the, the, the goal isn't to talk anybody into or out of anything. It's to help people become more thoughtful and more reflective about what they believe. And the goal is to help people value or have certain attitudinal dispositions. And I think, Jessica, you and I spoke about this briefly, so that they value, for example, belief revision. Right. And how do you do that? I mean, this is kind of the basis of your whole book. <laughs> but like, Summarize how, your book. How would you convince sentence. someone to think about how they think? Well, even the way that question is framed, you're not convincing anybody to do anything. Yeah, you're using the Socratic method, which was a process that Socrates. There, there was Plato was the writer. Socrates didn't write anything, and Plato. Socrates was a character in Plato's dialogues called the Platonic dialogues. And so you use this process, and Socrates never referred to his own process as the Socratic method. But you use this process of asking people questions to help them be more honest, more sincere, and more reflective about what it is that they believe. Many people go through life and they're trapped, in a sense, in a prison of belief by certain dogmas and cultural rules and and norms. But they never think about it. They never reflect on it, or they're not sincere or honest about what they believe, or they don't know why they believe what they believe. So they they think they're, they're in possession of knowledge, but they're not. They're actually just in possession of belief. So obviously a lot of people tend to be surrounded by like-minded individuals, especially those who attend church. But don't you think we kind of live in a time where it's really hard to go without having your beliefs challenged at one point or another? So what is it that keeps people on like their own path if they're constantly getting bombarded with, you know, different ideas? It's an interesting question. I don't think that there's as much intentionality as you think. I think people seek out information that confirms what they already believe. They don't impose a Socratic or scientific method on their own thinking, whereas you'd want to look in your epistemic landscape and how you form beliefs, how you know what you know, why you, you think you've come to knowledge. And what you want to do is you want to try to falsify or show those beliefs to be false. And we haven't done that. And not only do I think people... I think the problem is not just that people don't do that, it's that they don't value that. And when you don't value something, you don't seek it out because you think you already have it. So you're saying most religious people aren't looking for any reason to think they might be wrong. Yeah. And, and most people, not even yeah. religious people, most people don't look for reasons they might be wrong. Yeah, I'm glad you, you imposed that correction. I, I think that religion is a symptom. It's a particularly virulent and nasty sim- symptom because it has 
institutionalized mechanisms and tax incentives, et cetera, to keep it into in place. But I don't think that the problem in any way is unique to religion. It's, so even it's like a, a Democrats, co- even Republicans exactly. are having yeah. the same problem. Like we, I'm going to watch MSNBC the, right. and not Fox News or vice versa. It extends into the political arena. It extends into virtually every domain of thought that one can think of. And that's beyond the, the scope of this conversation, but it could be an evolutionary mechanism. The, mm. the brain is, in, in a very real sense, an engine of belief. And so we we have mechanisms to keep our beliefs in place. Is this a problem within the atheist community, you think? That, uh, you know, once I've convinced, I, I was religious, and then I convinced myself that I was an atheist, you know? And we, a lot of us have been through the same thing. But now that I'm an atheist, is this something I need to be worried about regarding religion? Uh, well, w- worried is an interesting y- use of a term. I think that one should always be vigilant in making sure one's beliefs align with the truth. And in order to do that, you need certain dispositions. So you need to be able to have a rudimentary critical thinking skill set. You need to trust reason. You need to value certain things. And so this whole enterprise starts with what we value. Now, is it a problem? It all depends on how one defines atheist and what that means. And I've taken considerable flack for my definition of atheist, but I, or atheism in both, and but I stand by those. So it, it all depends on what one's starting point is. And if one is truly and sincerely honest with themselves and open to revise their beliefs. So how what can we do to make that happen? How do you convince someone that they've been incorrectly thinking about things? Well, he just so happens to have a book on just that really? topic. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you, you read a manual for creating atheists. <laughs> actually, I have um, to tell you. But actually, um, go ahead. Do you have a thing? Well, um, I was wondering, your, the title is A Manual for Creating Atheists. It's yeah. kind of like you're saying this is the correct thing you got to believe in, but that almost seems to go against this whole idea of you just got to learn how to think. See, I don't... Even though I agree that if you think correctly, you should go in that direction. Jessica, go ahead. Oh, well, I I just wanted to tell you my, um, like you said, we met at TAM a couple years ago, and my then-boyfriend, now-fiancé, like, was really taken by what you had to say. He went home, and he read your book, and he, so when we first, I don't think he listens to this, so I'm not going (laughs) to worry about embarrassing That's cool. My wife doesn't. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) Um, Like, when we met, he wouldn't, like, if we didn't get together, he wouldn't have given a shit about religion. Like, it just wasn't a thing. And then he read your book, and he would come over. He was like, Jess, it's like, it's like, he was saying, you, it's like a tree, and we're attacking the branches, and you have to go after the roots. Like, he was so, like, giddy about it. It was adorable, and um, I hope he doesn't listen to this episode, because he'd be But anyway, I I will say, you nailed your audience with that, I I must say, to stroke your ego a little bit. Oh well, thanks. Well, I'm I'm sincerely glad that he liked it. My my, uh, my goal in the book was really to help people to be more thoughtful and more honest with themselves. And it is a complicated question: How do we help people change their beliefs who don't want their beliefs changed? How do we help people have those attitudinal dispositions? I spoke of those earlier. And there is, uh, we don't have to do Jedi mind tricks or pluck this from the sky. There, there are, there's an extensive corpus of literature spanning multiple domains of thought on how to do this. So we just look at the literature, find out what works, and then we can custom tailor that to people who are trapped by pernicious belief systems. 
I mean, from everything, from the literature on how to how one exits a cult to drug and alcohol treatment to uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with prison inmates. So it's really it's really not um, a mystery. So if I follow what you're saying and I learn how to question my own beliefs and I do that correctly, and at the end of that, I still say, I believe in God and I'm a Christian, did I do it wrong? <laughs> no, I, I would be shocked if that were the case. I, I don't know. I think that atheism is a conclusion that one comes to by being by having a certain way of thinking about the world, a way that aligns one's it's a process. It's a way of being sincere and asking one's oneself questions. But I think that atheism is a conclusion that people will come to that conclusion if they have a critical thinking tool set. And so if somebody is a Christian and they come to that, then I think that it behooves me to think about to sincerely think about what the tool set that they used for that was, and maybe they're right. And so maybe I should believe that as well. Do you think there would be any value in repackaging what you had to say in a way that's more palatable to Christians? Because they're not going to pick up a book that says a manual for creating atheists. Right. Actually, they have. And I receive emails all the time from people saying, hey, you know, they read my your book in my church and I to warn us how to do it. (laughs) Just just but really just think think about just really be sincere for a second. I know that this podcast everybody likes to make jokes, but really think about something for a second instead of saying, look, if somebody comes up to you and they ask you this question and they read from my book, like the dialogues in the churches, instead of saying, really think about what that person is saying and be honest, they don't do that. They say, this is how to defend against that. Mm -hmm. So they've started with the assumption that they have the truth. And your initial question was about evangelism. Right. This is not evangelism. This is nothing to do. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. Mm Mm-hmm. But if they if, follow your method, they'll they'll hopefully arrive at your same conclusion. Or, but they follow the method for everything else. They uh-huh. follow the method when they walk into the bank and want change. They follow the method when they want to smell something in the refrigerator to see if it's gone bad. I mean, they follow the method in every other sense. Why wouldn't they follow the method about really substantive and significant things that are important in their lives that affect their communities? Because it, it's a sense, it's a t- it's a type of of dishonesty. They're being dishonest with themselves. Is it possible to? How do you tell someone? How do you even raise that question of I want to talk to you about how you think about things without being offensive or off putting? Because it seems like if anyone came up to me and said, "Listen, I, I mean, they're not going to say this directly, but you're you've been thinking the wrong way your whole life." Yeah. Um, let me show you how to do it correctly. I mean, my first thought would be, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> Not like, okay, let me hear what you have to say. Yeah. How do you raise yeah. this conversation? So there's a uh, – Anthony Magnabosco has a series of videos in which he adopts strategies from my book and he talks to religious people and atheists. is a one about karma and a Muslim woman. Excuse me. Yeah, he actually and, has these YouTube videos where he stops people. Oh, he doesn't stop people. He says, would you like talk to an atheist or something? Would you talk to me for like five minutes of your time? And he, and he sets a little timer and yeah. he has a, a camera, records those interventions, and then he posts them on YouTube. So I don't see that those people are off put at all. In fact, quite the contrary. If you watch those videos, and I'm sure you know, people yeah. love love to talk about their faith. They love to talk about faith more than they love to talk about sex or politics. People love to talk about faith. So 
I don't think I, in all the years I've been doing, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times nobody has ever found it intrusive. Hmm. People have wanted to, to share the good news with me. Now They've I would make, to, to, yeah. I would make a distinction that those people like they saw uh, Anthony and they're like, all right, I'll talk to you. But not, Anthony is not necessarily uh, going like up and like, yeah, he's not approaching. Yet. They're coming up to him and saying, all right, I'm willing to have this discussion that's with you. That's not true. Oh. No, that's is not he going up to them? Yeah, he's going up to them. The the Muslim woman he interviewed, I can't remember her name. Yeah. She was at a Muslim fair, a fair for, I can't, I can't remember what it is. You have to watch the video. But yeah. he, he approaches her. But I think as long as you're sincere with yourself and honest with the person with whom you're speaking, I think you can have very engaging and very productive dialogues with people. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that we've, we're so polarized and we're so contentious and so many people want debates and shouting matches. This isn't a debate. I don't debate. I like to listen to what people – I like – I want to know why someone knows something they don't know. Well, I want to know why someone thinks that they know something that I don't know. And if their method of figuring that out is correct, well, of course I want to know what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Why, why wouldn't I? Do you think it's easier to have these conversations with strangers like Anthony does or with people in your circle, your friends, your family? I think strangers. Yeah, I would think strangers, too. Like, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to have it with, like, a relative at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, is there a difference in the approach? Is Have you found it to be easier with one group? I I mean, I haven't. But if if you find conversations with particular individuals more comfortable or strangers, then then maybe that's your comfort level. But Mm -hmm. I I haven't found that. So, I mean, I enjoy what Aristotle talks about. One of the virtues of having good conversations or one of the the virtues of uh, friendship. I like having good conversations. I enjoy those conversations and I enjoy learning from people and I love learning about how people think about things. So, so, you know, these are, again, this is not a mystery. This is not a secret. We're so contentious and so polarized and there's just so many invectives and names called even within our own, within our own community, which I would argue to you is in a, in a, in a sense, even worse that we need to take a step back and think about, really think about how to have a conversation with people and what that means to engage in civil discourse with someone. Because really, frankly, we have lost it. Is that something that's uh, unique to the internet world, or do you think we've also lost it in person? Because I can understand, like, a news program getting into shouting matches because they think it is more interesting. It boosts ratings or whatever. Um, But do you see the loss of civil discourse in regular conversation, or is that something unique to like the online world well i think anonymity breeds that i i can't say it's i i really don't know uh my mentor certainly told i just saw him recently and he's 94 and he told me he thinks it's worse now than it's ever been so i I, but i'm really not qualified I, i i can't speak to that i don't know have you learned anything new from your students regarding your approach or have you changed your your approach of things after talking to them Oh, I learn things every day from people. I learn things constantly from from people of Christians, from non Christians. I've just yeah, I, I I think if you stop learning you, you have a you have a life that's not worth living. Do you think uh let me ask you about like street preachers who might try to I mean, they're trying to convince you that they're right too. Yeah. What but that's a special breed of I think <laughs> people trying to talk you into what they believe. How do you deal with them? I'm just curious. Do you walk past them like I do, or do you actually try to have a civil conversation with them? Are they even capable of that? Everybody is capable of living a life free of delusion. 
So what do you do with them? Well, uh, it depends how much time I have. So I'm a pretty busy guy. <laughs> so uh, if if I have time, then I'll try to help them and speak to them. And if I don't have time, then I'll walk by them. I, I will say I have pretty I have I'm deaf in one ear and I have pretty bad tinnitus. And so I walk around with a head with my headphones <laughs> in and I listen to podcasts. Sometimes I listen to music if I'm feeling a little self indulgent. But but it makes it difficult for me to uh, often hear them. I've, I've had, you know, and sometimes you, you'll try to have a conversation with someone and they'll immediately start yelling at you. And then you realize that the total amount of time you'll, you'll have to put into that will be, you just won't receive that route that, um, you won't, you, it doesn't do the work that you need to do. And there are some people who have some pretty serious cognitive illnesses. And again, as I mentioned in the main of right. atheists, we, we can't reach those people either. People who suffer from brain damage, for right. example. So let me, let me use street preacher then as a symbol. There are people who will send me emails or something like that. And I can read their email. And my first thought is there's no way this person is interested in what I have to respond with. Yeah. Right. They're just happy sending me that email. I stick it in a special folder. I ignore it. Yeah. I don't respond. Um, is th- and that to me is like a street preacher too. They're not interested in having a conversation. They're interested yeah. in just yelling whatever it is they believe. Is it possible to get through to those people? Is there a way that they would listen to you that you found it, to be it effective? It, it hap- I mean, that's an empirical question. We can look at data and we can actually look at people who have escaped fundamentalist households. And the best one, I met him when I spoke in Canada and Calgary, is Nate Phelps of the famed Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. So we, we know, and in my book I give a list of many, many people. Many of those people are my friends, like John Loftus. Yeah. So we, we know for a fact that people leave religions, change religions, abandon their religions, or their faith traditions. And so – the we need the first thing I need to do very very briefly. I don't really want to get into this too much, but you need to ascertain one's degree of belief closure, and then once you do that, you can target the intervention towards them to try to help them where they are. So street pre- preachers are usually pre-contemplatives, and that Meaning? comes from this. Well, it's from this line of literature called the trans theoretical model about how to help people with pathological beliefs escape those beliefs. It's way too much for a thirty-minute conversation. Okay. So what do you do with what does that mean? What do we do with that though? Uh, well, you are you saying they're uh, out of reach? No, I'm saying that the that the approach that you take has to be different. Okay. So just very briefly, so you don't use facts with them because they don't people who dig <laughs> themselves into cognitive sinkholes yeah. don't do so on the basis of valuing evidence. They sure. do so because they don't value evidence. And it's like the horse in Alice in Wonderland that rides off furiously in all directions. Yeah. So the the belief that they come to will necessarily be arbitrary. And then they'll join communities in which they're taught that holding these beliefs are virtues. And this is one similarity among religious traditions. And there'll be a penalty, usually a penalty and I'm not talking about eternal hellfire. I'm talking about an immediate penalty with friends disfellowshipping or shunning or Jehovah's Witnesses or lawsuit in Scientology. So yeah. you, you'll have these mechanisms that are in place institutionally to keep people's beliefs intact, to keep their, their delusions in check. Um, or excuse me, to, to, to release the brakes from their delusions. And so – the biggest thing is that they're taught that having these beliefs is a virtue. Now, I will say something I've been thinking about a lot 
recently. I think the thing the, I'll volunteer this. You didn't ask me, yeah. but I think that the, one of the things that's, that's difficult for me is I think about this and I reflect on Jessica's question is that I try to approach people as if they're some very sincere and they're not pretending to know things they don't know. So, not always, but I try to approach people as if we're genuine. I model the behavior. So as if we're both engaged in a genuine search for the truth and you're right when you, what you said before is about the emails you receive. Many people with whom you speak, they think they've already found the truth, and their goal is to convince you. And it really is it is wearing to do this as much as I do and to kind of freshen up to just say, okay, I'm speaking with someone, and this person is a sincere inquiry. They really want to figure out truth. They value the truth. I value the truth. And it's that attitudinal disposition that I find – so important that I value, but when you're speaking with someone and they don't have that, that disposition, um, it's, it can be disheartening, you know, because you really, you're not talking about the same things. You're not valuing the same things. This goes back to the whole idea of like, uh, you can't reason people into, uh, out of something they were never reasoned into in the first place. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wrote about that in the book. That's just simply untrue. Oh, you think, but you're saying that if they don't value the same things, they don't value reasoning or facts or evidence, um, it's going to be very hard. To, you can't use those things as like the tools in your arsenal or something. Well, it's Sam Harris articulated it, but it's a question with a really lengthy intellectual pedigree. And that is if someone doesn't value evidence, what evidence can you give them that they ought to value evidence? Right. And the answer and, to that. <laughs> well, the the answer to that is that you don't give them evidence, that you help them. So, so that's why this is a very common mistake that people make, especially this is made by smart, educated people. The mistake they make is they think that other people think like they do. So if they just gave them a, a data point, a piece mm -hmm. of information or what have you, that all of a sudden they'd see the light and just revise their beliefs. But we know for, for a fact yeah. that's just not true. Right. In fact, there's something called the backlash effect in which providing evidence and data to people makes them uh, – delve deeper into their beliefs. It, yeah. it actually does the opposite of what you think it does. So that's why the disposition, a critical thinking disposition is more important than a skill set. Because if you have a skill set without the attitude, you either won't use it or you'll selectively use it. Or as Michael Shermer says, you will find, you, you will be better at, com it's called rationalizing. You will be better at justifying bad ideas to yourself. And that's why being smart is not a prophylactic against believing asinine things. Because you may have, what, good reasons for believing bad things, at least in your mind? Because you because when you're smart, you're better at coming up with reasons for things. Okay. So you come up with good reasons for bad ideas. You You have a process in place that you can justify to yourself the things that you believe that are false. And then you couple that with the idea that having a particular belief makes you a better person. And voila, I mean, that really is a, a recipe for a kind of cognitive or epistemic closure. Or uh, You're creating almost an ideal set of conditions when you lay that on top of the brain, the cognitive architecture, for people to not revise their beliefs. Interesting. So there are, um, to kind of take a right turn for a second, there are some, pe some people in sort of the... The public sphere who tend to be our go-to um, people when it comes to arguing against faith, people like Bill Maher. Do you 
think that people like that are effective in debating the religious thing? Or do you think they're not doing a great job and doing more harm than good? I think there's a difference between what Bill Maher and Colbert and Ricky Gervais do at the macro level and what I write about in my book, which is the micro level. Mm. I'm not a fan of mocking people. I'm not a fan of ridicule. I don't want to make anybody feel bad about anything. I'm a sincere, I really am a because sincere Because it's not inquirer. effective? Or because well, you're just for a two, nice guy? I guess, that's, I guess that's the secondary reason. The primary reason is because I, I really do want to know what's true. I mean, okay. I genuinely, sure. I, I mean, why wouldn't I want to know something? It doesn't even make any sense to me. Why wouldn't I want to know something if it's true? Yeah. And the way to do that is you shut off a conversation and you invoke a defensive posture when you're speaking with someone and you start mocking and ridicule and call them a creatard and all this stuff. So, you, you know, I, I'm not for me in these one on one engagements, the way to approach people is with kindness, is with intellectual humility, is with treating them with dignity, is with compassion. When you leave the one on one sphere and you're talking about these macro strategies, it, it, I'm not going to tell Bill Maher what to do with his job. I do think that religion, uh, excuse me, I do think that sarcasm and mocking certain ideas hold a place. But in one-on-one interventions, they do not. I don't Mm -hmm. know of any piece of, even a single piece of literature that says if you mock somebody when you're speaking with them, they won't invoke a defensive posture and they're more likely to change their beliefs. That that's just that. I would be astonished if if someone could show me the literature on that. Well, this makes sense too because I I agree. There's a lot of people I know who maybe question their faith for the first time because they heard George Carlin doing a bit, or they or they heard Ricky Gervais or Bill Maher saying something. But I would never think to myself to use those lines or to the, use their arguments, so to speak, if I were having like coffee with someone who was religious. Oh, God, no. Because, yeah. it, like so, you're saying, I don't think that would be effective, and right. it's it's weird. So, okay, <laughs> so let's take a look at that. It's so weird. Bill Maher says something, and they start thinking, or Ricky Gervais or Colbert, what have you, and then the people start thinking, and then they say, hey, you know, Jessica, or Jessica's boyfriend, whatever his name is, or, excuse me, fiancé, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Uh, Jessica's fiancé, and when you speak with them, the, there's a way to speak with them. So that's the contemplative stage. They're, they're in a different stage of trans, transforming into a life of reason, and they're thinking about it. They're thinking about abandoning their faith. And the way to help them is they're just there are processes and methods that you can engage them. You can engage in conversation with them so that they can be more honest with themselves and that you can provide them some tools and some ways to reflect upon their beliefs so that they can cast off silliness. Does this work on your children? (laughs) Does it work on my children? Like, can you convince them like, okay, you're arguing with me about something, (laughs) but let me explain to you how you should be thinking about like, I don't know. Does does that hold any weight when it's your own kids? I don't. You know, the older I get, the less I try to convince people <laughs> of it. It really is true. I, my my friend, I'll send you the link from the Dawkins Foundation. Sent me a a link from a video about a guy. It was really interesting. When you try to control people, you end up being a hostage yourself. You end up ceding your autonomy and authority to them. And I think the whole idea of convincing or controlling or dominating or manipulating, I think that those things are – we need to, to move beyond that. So I don't know. Does it, does it, I mean I, I engage my son and, and, and my daughter too, but she's younger, so there's a little different. There's an age difference there. 
I mean, my son has convinced me, to use your word, convinced he's engaged me in a kind of Socratic questioning. I've changed my mind about things in his life. And, he and can stay out an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> I guess that's the question I'm, I'm getting to, which is like, I got into like yelling matches with my parents all the time. And I wonder if your arguments are any different. <laughs> Well, I don't know. You, I've had a lot of people come to my house, and we have an extra bedroom. You can come and you can see yourself. But <laughs> yeah. if you're we'll not, we'll take you up on that, man. I, I Be careful you are. I think a lot of parents. Well, yeah, you're well, always. We always have people here all the time. I, I, I think if you're really honest with yourself about your parenting, you realize that most quote unquote parenting strategies they're just ideologies. There's really no evidence for them. There's, there's no evidence. You should do this students. because I said so. Yeah, the whole Job card. But even, even beyond that, there. are there's a kind of myopia when it comes to certain strategies that are effective for child rearing. And the one thing that those strategies have in common, in fact, I wrote about this in the Ford for Daniel's book, is that they're under under or unevidenced. They're just byproducts of uh, whatever happens to be in vogue in the culture right now. Mm. And there's some really interesting literature on parents and personality and how personality type is absolutely un- completely unaffected by parenting style. Do your children, or did they ever believe in Santa Claus? My, I never have lied to my children about that, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, any of it. My wife uh, did, however, and I told her that she's certainly welcome to navigate her relationship with the children however she wants, but <laughs> I will navigate my relationship. And if they ask me, I'm going to tell them the truth. So I'm not a fan of... How did that uh, go over? <laughs> well, actually, it went over really well because that's the idea, again, of not Im- impeding on someone's autonomy. So I try not to impede on my wife's autonomy, no matter what, what sexual autonomy, psychological. I, I'm not out to dominate or tell anybody how to live their lives. Let me Let me talk about your app. Tell me about what this app you're working on is, what it does, uh, how are we supposed to use it? Um, it's basically it embeds questions and takes off from the book. So it talks about, it teaches people how to ask questions in a way that's non-confrontational to have someone who, to talk to someone who passionately believes in God or faith or uh, a religion. So it's a partially informative and it helps people reclaim a sense of wonder and curiosity about their lives and what they value. So it's not something I'm going to like whip out when I'm in a like heated argument with a creationist. Well, Peter Bogosian says you're yeah. wrong. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> this is a well, tutorial. Like a, uh, it's an app that's supposed to help me think better or think more in a in a better think way. Think better and think of in, and not only to help you think better, but when you engage people, there are literally. I mean, I am not kidding when I say tens of thousands of fields. I can screen share with you if you want to Skype with me, and I'll just give you a peek at it. Yeah. And it's basically any question that people can think of from, you know, drugs and booze to quantum physics, fundamentalism. So there are just hundreds of categories and icons to go along with those categories. So it talks about DPDs. It talks about benefits. And there are five levels. It's like escaping Plato's cave. And they run through issues in a in a away from less complicated to less complex to more complex at the at the highest level. So it really it teaches people how to detect BS. It teaches people how to have more constructive, more compassionate conversations with people to help them engender doubt. And, and when is this finally coming out? 
Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> Soon. We, we think Soon. We're, we're shooting for a, a June release date. June 3rd is the target date. Okay. And right before Imagine No Religion 5. Excellent. And now what are some of the other projects you are working on over the course of the next year? Boy, uh, the 24th, I have a fundraiser at Sherma's house with Bill Nye. Um, in that Feb- that's like my house parties yeah in in february uh i'm sure you actually i know you know victor stanger because you had sent an email about that uh it's uh vic's vic's last published work with jay Lindsay and i published a piece that'll be coming out in scientific american called physicists are philosophers too so it's a nice little tribute to vic uh, february 28th i decided i didn't enemies so i'm going to go after the sustainability movement i have an <laughs> academic presentation i have i have an presentation at the university of portland uh april i think it's the 9th through 12th definitely but it's unconfirmed i have a in new york city with ecss i have a game coming out which i'm pretty excited about in fact my uh, partner from Elbowfish, david galliel was just here we had dinner tonight i have a game coming out it's called jux it's a <laughs> an un, an un Predict, yeah, it's like you juxtapose things. It's a it's a story game that again, it's about the dispositions of critical thinking. How to do that in a fun environment that's non-academic, that takes it off the table, that values belief revision in a storytelling context. So huh. that should be out June one. That's kind of cool. Um, and then I'm going to go on tour in Australia. Right after, yeah, it's going to be really cool. I I have, this is kind of interesting. I very graciously invited myself to many (laughs) houses and then accepted my own invitation. So that's okay. Isn't that great? My people I've done, I've done podcasts with them, Russell Blackford, Jake Farwarden, Adam Reeks, I've many people. So I'm, or Tim Van Gelder. So I've, uh, I've accepted all of my invitations. So I'm going to go on tour for about five (laughs) weeks. So that's pretty cool. And then finally, for 2015, hopefully I'll have a, a, a very radical paper coming out. The older I get, the more uh, experimental I become. It's about the tr- training method in Brazilian jiu-jitsu being used in critical thinking classes. So that's a You and paper. Sam Harris and the jiu-jitsu, man. <laughs> yep. The, the ultimate corrective mechanism right there. There you go. <laughs> Here's your app. Boom. <laughs> You cannot That's fake what you being, mean by street epistemology. Yeah, you, you, you can't fake being good at jiu-jitsu any more than you can fake speaking Mandarin. <laughs> and, and, and right, a native speaker will know instantly. Right. Somebody who knows jiu-jitsu. So there's a built-in <laughs> corrective mechanism for that. So, yeah, jiu-jitsu is a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for calling in. And uh, good luck with all of your endeavors this year. Yeah, we'll post links to everything in the show notes for this episode, and uh, we'll post a link to a manual for creating atheists. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at friendlyatheistpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.